Coming up today on The Courier Daily. The big, big learning for us has been the strength of our team and the way that our team enabled this pivot, which has in many ways saved the company, certainly saved the spirit and the culture of, of this organization. And a bit later on, how will the world of filmmaking be affected by the crisis? We see trends come and they go, and the next trend is going to be animation. And then after that, hopefully the people will be wanting to do bigger and better and really ambitious projects because they finally can. I think that would be an exciting time for people. I'm Daniel Giacopelli. It's the 24th of April, and this is The Courier Daily. We're checking in with small business owners every day all over the world to find out how they're adapting, growing, and surviving. We're kicking off today's show in New York with Franco Fubini. He's the founder of Natura, which sources premium seasonal fruit and vegetables from hundreds of farmers in Europe and the U.S., and then sells them to high-end chefs and restaurants like Hawksmoor in London and David Chang's Momofuku Co. Well, that was all before the crisis, at least. Now, with restaurant revenue near zero in some of its markets, Natura's pivoted and opened up their chef-only app to everyone. Franco's on the line now from Brooklyn. And Franco, I guess, first of all, I mean, how have you guys really been coping the past few weeks? Yeah, so we're present in a number of regions. So we, I guess, had the benefit of foresight. Seeing what was happening in Milan led us to think very quickly that the situation wasn't going to be great for restaurants. And given that 60% of our revenue globally comes from restaurants, it was obviously a big concern for us. That was the first indicator. And then on the 11th of March, we took the decision as an executive team to repurpose our app, open it up to the retail consumer, and that kind of led us on the path of, of this, uh, this pivot that we've taken. And how's it gone so far? I mean, it seems like thousands of people have signed up immediately to get food delivered to their home. Yeah, it's been incredible. Much better than we expected. We obviously had a number in mind, but ultimately now we're at over 50,000 customers in both uh, London and New York that have accounts on our app. We have had to increase capacity in both London and New York. So we've recruited over 15 people in London and uh, about six people here in New York to cope with capacity. And then ultimately our revenues are now above budget. So it's just been completely nuts. So obviously all the revenue is not 100% coming from home delivery, but home delivery has helped us recover the vast majority of, of the revenue to the point where we're over budget on both markets, in both London and, and New York. Paris, we have had to, we took the decision to, to kind of leave it dormant because of the government help in, in France. What are the biggest sticking points right now for you to deliver ingredients from a farm to somebody's home in a city? What are the big challenges that have arisen within that kind of process? I mean, really, mostly it's uh, technological. Fortunately, we have our own tech team at Natura, and I think the investment that we've made over the years in, in building our own systems has paid off in a moment like this. The big challenge is not so much in the supply chain, but it's actually in utilizing an app that's been developed for chefs and how we enable consumers to use that. There's a lot of quirks that are very chef-driven. Uh, the fact that you've got a basket that is live, you don't need to click on a button that says place order, the fact that you don't have a delivery slot and so forth. So the real challenge in getting the good food out to consumers has been ensuring that the service becomes more and more uh, retail friendly as, as the weeks go by. I mean, I understand that you guys are keen to continue this model post-lockdown, 
Which I suppose begs the question, you know, if it's such a lucrative model and interesting, I mean, why didn't you do this, you know, a year ago? That's <laughs> a, a very good question. Uh, someone else was asking me the same question here at the office, like, why didn't we do this before? I guess, you know, we started out as a home delivery business 15 years ago in London, and then we shut that part of our business about four years ago. It's a very difficult business to compete in. So, you know, the future is very much about retaining this part of our business. I think we're much more mature. We have a brand now that was in a very different place back in the day when we were doing home deliveries in London. As to whether it's going to be lucrative, it's something that we're actively working on to better understand our economic model. So we, we have some experience from previous days, but we really need to understand our economic model. There's questions around delivery and the density of deliveries or how fast we can do deliveries once traffic resumes into the big cities. So we really need to take the next kind of month or two to nail down our economic model, make sure that it's viable for us. And that then if we do retain it, which is what our intention is, we do so in a way that's sustainable for the business. Yeah. And I'm wondering, I mean, I guess if so many more people now are ordering delicious ingredients to their home from you, are you in a way also kind of cannibalizing your restaurant clients as well? I mean, if people are cooking at home with good ingredients, maybe they might not go to a restaurant to eat those good ingredients. Again, I think that's a very good observation. We've got stores in London. Uh, we have five stores there. We do reach the home direct. There is a part of us which is thinking, you know, we want to support the restaurants and we're doing everything that we can at the moment while the restaurants are mostly shut to be able to support them and to be there when they return. But for sure, some of the things that are happening today, which in some ways are very good for our global mission, which is to revolutionize the food system, is that the shift from out of home consumption of food to in the home, yes, in some ways plays against the restaurant industry, right? So I guess the where we stand, we try and support both avenues, which are both important for the ultimate mission that we have. And the suppliers that you talk to every day, the farmers, the people who have livestock, who have vegetables and fields, and what are their biggest concerns when you guys talk to them on a daily basis? Are they worried about just not being around in a few years? I mean, do they think they'll always have a, a path to, you know, to profits? I mean, there's a lot of concern at the moment. You've probably have read that there's a lot of the very, very large farms, which are not in our supply chain, are having to basically forego harvesting product. I think with our supply chain, which is geared to smaller farms and non-industrial types of farms, there is nonetheless a big concern about the shift from restaurants into the home because a lot of the farms can't move quick enough to divert sales channels as quick as a company like ours. They don't have the sales resource. They don't have, they're not in the right location. They might be in the middle of Vermont. So shifting the volume that is already in the ground that's going to be coming up in the next month or two is of great concern to, to some of the farmers that we work with. You guys have access to a lot of data on what people are ordering in terms of ingredients. Are there any surprises? I mean, are people ordering things that you saw and you're like, hmm, I wonder what people are doing with that ingredient? No, at the moment, it's kind of the usual. There's a lot of people still searching for what you would consider kind of essentials. So flour, bread, potatoes, eggs, that kind of stuff. I think it'll be interesting to see as we move on to the local season to see what interesting products we're selling. Um, you know, having said that, we just started bringing in some of our forage, spring forage products, and they're selling very well. So fiddlehead ferns and nettles, Japanese knotweed, most of that has sold. The first order that came in is pretty much all gone. I know that nettles and fiddleheads are, are gone. There's some knotweed left, so. Is there anything else you've learned in the past couple weeks amid this insanity about, you know, what it's like running a company? It's been a whirlwind for every small business owner on the, on the planet. 
It's been a whirlwind. I think there's a couple of things. I don't know if it's learning or really reflecting is that the strength of the team is ultimately what allows you to figure out whether you're going to come out of this in a better state than, than before, which I think that we're in the enviable position that we're going to come out of this stronger than than before. We're certainly from a revenue standpoint and it's looking like from a profit standpoint, we're going to come out of it stronger. We still have to face the uncertainty of what we're going to collect from receivables. But ultimately, I think the big, big learning for us has been the strength of our team and the way that our team enabled this pivot, which has in many ways saved the company. Certainly, save the spirit and the culture of, of this organization. And if you think about uh, kind of roughly 350 employees we have a, across the regions, the fact that we only laid off two employees in the first week and we're now back up to a larger organization than we were pre, pre-COVID, it's bordering on the miraculous. And I think that that's really down to the strength of our team, which obviously was built before, before this crisis. Next up, how do you make a film during a pandemic? The answer is a lot of hustling and creativity. Prudence Beecroft is the executive producer of Odele Films, a production company that works on commercial and branded content from film and documentaries to music videos. And, you know, Prudence, I imagine that given the way the films are made with, you know, tons of people basically standing next to one another, that most productions now are completely on hold, right? Film is probably one of the things that's been hit quite instantly because of the nature of what we do. As soon as lockdown started, it wasn't as though it was like a filtering out of slowing down jobs. It was suddenly, we can't really work in the normal way. So we went from the core of our business is about getting people together in the same room. We have all our pre-production time and ultimately we work towards having 50 to 150 people on set, be that through extras or crew, And the nature of it is that we are definitely closer than two metres apart. So most of the kind of government restrictions really inhibit what we can actually do as a company. And likewise, like we get a lot of our kit from various suppliers. They pretty much shut their doors overnight as well. And they furloughed all their staff for a minimum of two months. As a company, we do have some camera kit. Anything that's specialist in terms of specialist lenses, specialist rigs, props we might hire from a prop house they're also closed. So we can't get all the things we need to be able to do a shoot to kind of the standard which we're usually used to doing. It became very clear very quickly that we needed to change what we were doing. We've started implementing new plans now, but they will take a while for clients to be ready to press go on a lot of those things. Right. So what are some really interesting ways that you guys are pivoting and adapting in order to make a really good film in this time? We've taken over a studio, which is like a small top, tabletop studio. So that was the, and it's the first time we've actually had that. We've always uh, hired out studios separately, depending on what the job is. But this enables us to be quite reactive and we can make like, tabletop content that can be done by a crew of two or three, for example. And what is tabletop content? Pretend I'm an idiot. <laughs> so very simple animation work, for example, or I mean, funnily enough, we've been pitching on an idea which is uh, using kind of like hands as like characters. So each is like a band that each finger represents a different character and we're trying to get celebrities to play the fingers. So that is just one example of what we're pitching on and are working with at the moment. But it's, yeah, it's anything to a very small scale, basically. So we're not talking about having huge lighting setups or huge green screen things or it's, it's all kind of within the confines of a small room essentially with a basic lighting setup and potentially like a, a small green screen or something like that that we can sort of be creative with 
we've been encouraging our clients to do like reversionings of older jobs like maybe we could change the edit slightly maybe we could do some post work to make sure it's a, it's still relevant to their audience now we've had some success in the past of making films completely out of stock footage so that's something we've been kind of going back to and saying why don't we do something like using Shutterstock or Getty or any of the image libraries that we can have access to and we can make a narrative film out of that we're saying to clients that we've got directors at home that have small kit and they've got families and you know we've been reproached by a nappy brand for example saying that they want to do some films using directors families or babies it'll be user-generated content and I think at a time like this the stuff that's going viral is actually quite user-generated but it may not have the kind of like professional kind of gloss over it that makes it appropriate for brands. So we can take a lot of the stuff that's being made by people at home, we can give it a narrative, we can edit it in the right way, we can add a bit of a storyline to it, we can help put the brand image at the back and we can make sure it's kind of like the sound is to quality for the TV, we can, you know, make sure it's glossy enough to be shared. So that's where we can come in on that side. How do you think that the crisis will permanently impact the filmmaking industry? There's quite a few ways in which I think it's going to change things. One way at the moment is that with shoots, you expect your client, your agency to be on set. And that's something that we definitely encourage as much as possible because we want to make sure they're on board with every decision we're making on an hourly basis. With this being going on, a lot of clients have said that they want to have access but they st- and they still want things to go ahead, but they won't obviously be in the room. So we're looking at software where we can have what's known as a video village is where you have your client and your agency on set, but we're going to be changing it to a remote video village. So we can use our equipment to ensure that the client agency could be anywhere in the world and they can have like a front row seat to the video village, essentially, and they can have the live stream of what's going on on the camera directly to their laptop. We've had a director do this very same thing over in Amsterdam, and he said it was brilliant because actually they've got slightly lighter restrictions in Amsterdam at the moment, so they were able to assemble on a small crew. And he said that he was able, as a director, to focus really on working with the actor and what they wanted to get done. And then the producer was getting all the information fed back on WhatsApp and then relaying that. And then it was a very clear discussion and a very clear kind of taking on board of anyone's notes. So it actually said it was great. So I think that moving forward, how that would affect it is that maybe clients and agencies won't be on set as much and that will reduce huge amounts of travel budget and accommodation budget and food budget for those people. Generally, people working at home is one thing, but we've also realised how pre-production we could do anywhere. We know we could do that anywhere. It just needs a producer and a production team with a laptop. We're pretty nimble on that side. Obviously, this period, as I said, is like people are... You know, our, our wings are slightly clipped as what we can do in a production perspective. So we can't do huge set builds with lots of people in the same room. We can't do huge crowd scenes at the moment. There's lots of things we can't creatively do. We can come up with solutions to that, but we can't do that right now. So in the next few months, the films that will be coming out will be kind of not having those in there. So maybe we're going to see a, a sort of a big surge of animation coming out that brands are going to be looking at. We're going to see lots of smaller shoots or documentary style shoots. But I think there will definitely be a sort of like full circle reaction to that as well. There's always trends in film, you know, like when La La Land came out a few months later, everyone wanted a musical based ad. So we see trends come and they go and 
the next trend is going to be animation and then after that hopefully people will be wanting to do bigger and better and really ambitious projects because they finally can i think that would be an exciting time for people yeah every every movie will be involving huge crowds or something like that yeah yeah holding hands um, breathing onto one another yeah coughing on each other's faces <laughs> yeah <laughs> but that's also a really interesting thing to think about because i've got a friend who's a graphic designer and he's working on a really high profile brand that was involved with the olympics and doing lots of kind of stuff around that and they were saying that they had to redo all their posters so that the characters in the posters were socially distant it's less so like that anyone thought there was actually a risk going on between those two models but it's like as advertisers we've got a responsibility to enforce what we should be saying to people i.e if a brand doesn't feel it's morally right to have people holding hands or snuggling up next to each other at this time then they can't put that out so that's going to affect how we as producers will cast or the narrative will be changing or yeah generally like the storyline might be different in the future and as ever on every friday show we talk all things courier weekly with duncan griffiths and john sunyer gentlemen welcome back to your third appearance on the show hey danny good to be here john how you doing Good, thank you. How are you? All good here. So, this week, guys, we covered a lot of things. We talked about how a uh, London-based salon basically brought their product way, way, way forward from when they wanted to launch it. Duncan, what was this story about? Yeah, so Bleach, which is a hair salon based in East London, originally planned to launch this kind of whole digital package involving kind of tutorials, a chat functionality, all that kind of stuff to coincide with a new salon launch, and that was going to be in June. Obviously, when COVID-19 hit, they kind of decided to change their strategy completely. And that's basically meant being led by their tech team. And it's a team which hadn't even been in place in February. Suddenly, the whole company is kind of operating to these weekly cadences where they're releasing and updating different products every week. And the whole team is working to that same structure. Also in this edition, guys, we look at how to stay sane while working in a shared workspace, essentially your living room. You either work with a partner or you live with a partner who is having an intense job. And we talked to Ian and Zoe Sanders, they're work-life specialists, and they gave us some tips on how not to kill your partner. You both obviously live with your partners. Any tips you guys have? So I get regular texts from my wife, who's working in a different room from me. And basically, they're always involving whether it's time for a snack and whether it's snack time. Basically, variations on a snack theme. So you get texts throughout the day. John, do you get texts? No, I, d- I just get shouted at because apparently I type too loudly. <laughs> you do type very loudly. Are you guys missing that? John is a very loud typer. He's one of the loudest typers I've yeah. ever had the, the pleasure of sitting next to. Yeah, it's like he's uh, Norman Mailer banging out some sort of like novel on the, <laughs> on the typewriter or something. What were the tips from Ian, though, Duncan? I mean, he said you had to set rules, number one. What was that about? Yeah, so hopefully, you know, situations aren't irreparably damaged by now. The kind of four things he mentioned were... To set rules about certain things, so for example, our mealtime is a work-free zone. Basically to separate for your strolls and to leave the house at different times so you're not always together. Quite an obvious one, but to compartmentalise, so if you're going to have a video call or you want to get into some deep work, go into a separate room, your bedroom for example. And then one which I think we could all take some advice from is to be kind, so if your flatmate or the person you're living with is having a bad day, seems stressed, just basically look out for them. So maybe that might be making a meal, a coffee, or just showing them a funny video on YouTube. 
And John, you edited a, a really great piece this week all about the future of sustainable fashion. Obviously, sustainable fashion has been a theme for a number of years, and it seemed like finally customers were putting their money where their mouth was. They were buying sustainable. Now, lo and behold, here comes the crisis. What's going on? Yeah, it, and it wasn't only that customers were buying sustainable, and it wasn't only that small independent brands were being sustainable. What we were also seeing was the big retailers, Nike, H&M here in the UK, all of those companies were claiming to be sustainable as well. But what we've seen in March, we saw a 50% drop in global clothing sales with customers pretty wary of spending. So now the big question is what happens next? Is sustainability going to be the kind of luxury add-on, big brands drop, or whether they're going to kind of stick to their guns? What about Farfetch, the e-com platform? They announced something this week too, right? Yeah, so overall with small independent brands, you know, they are sticking to their guns. We spoke to people in Spain, Australia, here in the UK. Um, but what was also quite reassuring was the e-commerce platform Farfetch. Farfetch announced just this week that it was changing its ways and it unveiled its carbon reducing delivery initiative, which offsets all of its global emissions for shipping and returns. And with over 3000 independent retailers, that was no mean feat. So that was a kind of green shoot to come from all of this. And that's it for today's show. If you like the episode, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts. I'd really appreciate it. And as ever, sign up to Courier Weekly, our email newsletter for more stories of pivoting, adapting, and growing. Just head to couriermedia.co slash sign up. I'm Daniel Giacopelli. The Courier Daily is back again on Monday. Monday.